Um, in the interest of time, would you be so kind as to turn to Ephesians 5, please? Just have your Bibles open there. Um, we're not going to look at it for a bit. As some of you may know, <clears throat> our dear friends from Colorado have spent the better part of last week with us. And as they were getting ready to leave, much to our surprise, they presented us with several paintings Bill had done in the last few years, one of which is a beautiful oil painting of the Golden Gate Bridge. Having lived in the Bay Area for the better part of my life, I have stood at the foot of the Golden Gate Bridge on dozens of occasions, but seeing this painting, I was reminded afresh of the secret of that incredible structure. By design, every portion of that bridge, its concrete roadway, its steel railings, its cross beams is inevitably related from one welded joint to the other up through the vast cable system to two great towers and two great land anchor piers. The towers, however, bear most of the weight and they are embedded deeply in the rock foundation beneath the sea. In other words, the bridge is totally preoccupied with its foundation. At the same time, the Golden Gate Bridge has been built to sway some 20 feet at the center of its one-mile suspension span. In other words, it has also been designed to be flexible. Herein is the secret to the durability of the Golden Gate Bridge, a preoccupation with its foundation and a flexibility that is intentional. A preoccupation with its foundation and a flexibility that is intentional. And in my mind, beloved, these are precisely the qualities that must always distinguish a vibrant, vigorous, healthy congregation of Christians. A preoccupation with our foundation and a flexibility that is designed, that is intentional. These qualities must always characterize Trinity Church. It must always characterize Trinity Church, a preoccupation with our foundation and an intentional flexibility. We are to be preoccupied with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our foundation. So we sing the gospel, we preach the gospel, we base our decisions on the gospel, we structure our worship around the gospel, we remind ourselves that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day of our lives, and that our mission is to make clear the message of the gospel to the unsaved people of this world. To say to them, even as I say to you with some frequency, the God who has made you, the God who has determined the very number of days in which you live on this planet is the God to whom you are accountable, which puts you in a tight place because his standard is perfection and the record of your actions, your thoughts, your words clearly proves you to be otherwise. You are guilty, just as I am guilty and rightly deserving the judgment that the penalty for sin demands. But while you are guilty, God is gracious and has taken action to meet your precise need. He himself has come to us in his son, Jesus Christ, and has endured the holy judgment that was due us, dying on our place, rising from the dead so as to announce his victory over sin and the victory 
that belongs to all of us who trust in him. This is the gospel. If you do not know the gospel tonight, the forgiveness it brings, the gift of eternal life, I urge you not to leave this place tonight until you've embraced the gospel and experienced all of its benefits. This is our foundation, beloved, and it must always be our preoccupation, the bedrock into which our congregation is ever deepening itself. The gospel, the gospel. Never think you're ready to get beyond the gospel. You, were never, you have never mastered the gospel. The gospel must always, for the rest of your life, master you. Simultaneously, in most other things, there must be an intentional flexibility built into the congregation if it is to remain healthy. Now, admittedly, brothers and sisters, to some people, this will be profoundly threatening, perhaps owing to their own insecurities. But if a vital, uh, uh, the vitality of a congregation is to be preserved and enhanced, we must never insist that everyone marches in goose-stepping conformity to where the Bible itself is not explicit. And one of the most strategic points of this flexibility in a congregation must be in relationship to many of the practical matters related to the family. Why? Precisely because many of the questions we have about family living, the Bible itself does not directly address. So while we happily affirm what the Bible does say, and we have attempted to do that very thing over the last 12 or 15 weeks, we must speak much more circumspectly when making application that is reflective of our own wisdom. And I remind you of this tonight, friends, because many of the questions you have asked, good questions, good questions, important questions, critical questions, fall into this category. And precisely because I do regard the Bible as the Word of God, I must never elevate my wisdom, however much it may be derived from the Word of God, to the level of biblical authority. Remember the Golden Gate Bridge. Always keep that image in your mind and how it illustrates a healthy congregation of Christians preoccupied with its foundation and intentionally flexible. Never either or, always both and. Okay? Last pitch for that because we're going to be leaving this business of husbands and wives after tonight. So here is the first question. The focus on the family in light of the gospel series seemed to indicate a general negativity toward James Dobson and his organization. Yet Wikipedia <coughs> states he is considered one of the most influential Christian evangelical leaders of our time. Why the negativity towards him? Should we avoid his publications and media to instruct us on parenting? And if so, who, what should we read? That's a good question. And assuming now, for the sake of argument, that this question is an accurate representation of Wikipedia, the source of all comprehensive, perfect knowledge, I would really only disagree with it at one point. That James Dobson was not one of the most influential evangelicals of our time. He was the most influential evangelical in the American church during the last years, the last 30 years or so of the 20th century surpassing even Billy Graham, the most influential evangelical for the 25 years prior. I do believe that the, that the 
that, that from about 1970 through 2000 and extending a little beyond, the single most influential evangelical on the planet was James Dobson. Now, friends, it is not my place or right to judge the heart of James Dobson. I don't know him. I have never met him. He operates in a stratosphere that I will never enter. I have read several of his books and in some cases been wonderfully helped by them. For example, parenting isn't for cowards. Straight talk to men and their wives. His writing evidences a humility I find refreshing and compelling. He can laugh at himself, and I find that to be a wonderful quality. He approaches his theological comments from a different vantage point than, does, than, than do I, but that in no way speaks to the integrity of his Christianity or his godliness. I can only assume that he is a godly man who loves the scriptures and who wants to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Christian love, 1 Corinthians 13, demands that I assume the best of him, and I do. He is to be applauded for wanting to address the disintegration of the family. But in so doing, one can hardly deny that over the last 30 years, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been eclipsed and the family has been raised to the level of first priority. Now, this is not the exclusive fault of any one person, certainly not James Dobson. However, you must understand, beloved, that on the pages of the New Testament and throughout the centuries of church history, a frightening conspiracy is working against the gospel. You need to know that whatever comes out of my mouth, that is something that is always rumbling around in my brain. I always believe that there is a frightening conspiracy against the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's why Paul says, when he shows up in Corinth, don't forget, I, I, didn't, I, I, I came only here to make known Jesus Christ and him crucified. I wasn't really preoccupied with other kinds of things. I wasn't spending all of my time parsing doctrinal and theological minutiae. I was here to declare the gospel because that is everything. I think that it is the intention of the enemy always to assault the gospel in one form or another. And if not by directly attacking it through subtly causing other things to become the priority, almost inadvertently. And in fact, my dear friends, the problem really may not be focused on the family at all, but those who listen to it and read its publications and as a consequence have turned the family into an idol. So that now everything surrenders to the family, which can only prove to be detrimental to the family as it is collapsing under its own weight. Norm could tell you better than I, the present statistics now indicate this very thing, that rather correcting the problem or even staying the problem, the disintegration of the Christian family now rivals that of the non-Christian family. For all of our talk about the family, for all of our preoccupation with the family, it is only work to the detriment of the family. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the name of Dr. Paul Ebert. He's in heaven now, but for many years he served as a missiologist at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. 
He was a missiologist, a professor of missions, the science of doing missionary work. As you may recognize from his name, Ebert, his origins were very distinctly Mennonite, and he was known to describe his own Mennonite heritage in this following way. The first generation of Mennonites were people preoccupied with the gospel, but who also felt that there were certain social responsibilities for which they needed to be concerned. The second generation of Mennonites assumed the gospel and became increasingly absorbed with social responsibility. The third generation of Mennonites abandoned the gospel and have consequently become altogether preoccupied with social responsibility. From preoccupied to assumed to abandoned. What a frightening trajectory. And I tell you something, friends, that's not to make a comment about the Mennonites. The same thing could be said about every other mainline denomination in this country. At this moment, generally speaking, the American evangelical church is at that second stage of Ebert's own description of Mennonitism. Assuming the gospel. Nobody's denying it. No evangelical denies it. Assuming the gospel and perhaps then only one generation away of, from abandoning it. And what has contributed to this? Not people like N.T. Wright who are undercutting the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The real nub of the issue is allowing secondary concerns to replace the gospel as the supreme and central priority. Is this the fault of focus on the family? Promise keepers? The moral majority? Not exclusively, but they've contributed to it as have all evangelical leaders who have allowed the gospel to be assumed while becoming preoccupied with right-wing politics, pro-life causes, emergent worship, homeschooling, reform theology, and whatever else happens to be hip at the present moment. The issue, beloved, is emphasis. The issue is emphasis. So never forget what Calvin says. The heart is an idol factory. We make idols out of everything. We are masters at taking something good and important and valuable and turning it into the supreme and central thing. And the devil laughs all the while as we degenerate into powerlessness and become less and less Christian while becoming more and more moral. So what can you read? What can you listen to to help by way of marriage and parenting? Oh, you're going to think I'm a flaming liberal. This is what you can read and this is what you can listen to. Everything! Insofar as you can remain discerning, submitting everything to the Scriptures and its central message, the Gospel. I don't care what you read. I can learn from anybody. I read people I don't believe all the time. As long as you understand that everything bows the knee to the Scriptures. Where the Scriptures speak, the argument's over. Now, if you're looking for a couple of tools, and there are several that I could mention, but just a couple that quickly come to mind that I penciled down today, let me suggest Gospel-Powered Parenting by Bill Farley. Uh, the Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. John Piper's Wisdom on Marriage in Desiring God is also very helpful, I think. Sexual Character by Marva Dawn. I've given out dozens of that book. It's a wonderful tool. 
But let me finish responding to this question by saying this. And I know I've said it many times, and you think, oh, Art, you're so profoundly superficial. Well, let me, let me be superficial one last time then. I do believe this with all of my heart. I do believe it with every fiber in my being. A good Christian can't make a bad husband. A good Christian cannot make a bad wife. A good Christian cannot make a bad parent. My dear friends, after all, what did the Christian family do before focus on the family ever existed? How did it survive for 2,000 years? So steep yourself in the gospel. Immerse your children in the truths of the gospel. Sing the gospel, talk the gospel, pray the gospel. Read Pilgrim's Progress to your children over and over and over again. Read the gospel primer so that you can learn how to preach the gospel to yourself every single day of your life. That will contribute more to your marriage and to your parenting than anything else you can read. Believe it! Okay? Believe that, because it's true. Any good thing any of us have to say about marriage and parenting will only be to the extent that it intersects with the Scriptures and the Gospel. All right? Okay, secondly, second question then. When we talk about doing things for the best interest of our wives, that's in quotations, does that include doing things that she may not realize are for her best interest? <laughs> okay, so which man asked this? Why do you guys persist in doing this? I've answered this question about 500 times since we've started this thing, haven't I? Oh... As we've been attempting to define and describe the headship of a Christian husband, and I would remind you for the final time, a Christian husband is never told to be the head. He is called the head, never told to function as the head. How does he function then as the head? By loving his wife like Christ loves the church. Functioning as her head means that every choice a husband makes needs to be bound up with the greatest good of his wife. We've been saying that over and over, as modeled by whom? The perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ, who yielded everything for the well-being of the church. So let me ask you, and follow my train of thought, does Jesus Christ always do what is in the best interest of the church? Yes. Gosh, you're sharp. Secondly, does the church always and in every way recognize these things as being done in her best interest? No. So, doing things for the church's greatest good that the church herself may not realize is something frequently does. Is that not right? Yes. Here's the next question. Husbands, are you Jesus? Are you the perfect son of God? Are you motivated by perfect love? Are you motivated by sinless selflessness? Are you omniscient? No, no, no. Are you given the role of Jesus Christ in her life? No. Your position as a husband does not guarantee the infallibility of your thoughts and your choices. So here is my suggestion. If you find yourself at an impasse with your wife over some issue, don't drop the hammer of headship on her. Seek to convince her that your conclusion is in her best interest. And watch this. If you can't 
convince her, don't do it. Unless to not do so would be in direct disobedience to explicit biblical instruction. I say this, friends, because in my experience, this kind of question usually has very little to do with explicit biblical prescription, and it has everything to do with who gets the final say? Who gets the final say? Who gets the final say? I mean, it sounds like children on a playground. Who gets to have the final word? I don't want him to buy a new car. He wants to buy a new car. In the end, he gets to trump her. Hooray! He gets his way because he's the husband. Is that what loving her as Christ loves the church means? It's absolutely absurd to think in that way, friends. As I've said to you again and again and again, this is the wrong question to be asking. This is not Nike. This is not General Motors. This is not IBM. This is not Bank of America. In that kind of setting, the president is here. I'm here. What he tells me to do, unless it is somehow defined to the authority of the Word of God, I do it and I don't ask questions. That's what it's about. But we are talking now about your home. She is not your subordinate. She is your other half. So win her, don't rule her. Ruling her will only alienating her will only alienate her. Being a husband is not a weak man's opportunity to finally rule over somebody because he's really not very good at ruling anybody. And if you must trump her, you better be certain that you are acting on the obvious authority of the word of God and not simply on what seems best to you. You are not that smart. You were not that wise, and sin stains your every motivation. It stains every one of my motivations. That's why I need the gospel every day. Are you at an impasse? How about submitting yourselves to the counsel of the elders? How about submitting yourself to the counsel of otherwise inexperienced people in the congregation? Unless you are leading by means of explicit biblical authority, you want to win, you don't want to rule. Get that thinking out of your mind once and for all. Okay? Here's the next question. Is the character of a wife always the result of a husband's love? In Ezekiel 16, and find the same thing in the book of Hosea, for example, Israel, who is God's bride, falls away and whores herself out to others. Surely we do not say that this was the Lord's fault. And of course the response is, of course we don't say it's the Lord's fault. So in answer to the question, I would respond like this. The character of a wife at the end of the day is never the result of her husband's love. To suggest otherwise would be to alleviate her of responsibility for the very obligations that are assigned to her as a Christian wife. What I have been trying to say to you in the past several weeks, friends, has been this. Husbands who do not love their wives as they should cannot be surprised when their wives are not the perfect models of submission. But this does not exempt Christian wives from the Christian obligation to submission. 
The character of a wife, just as is the case with her husband, is the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember this text here? Remember? We're not going to look at it anymore, so let me remind you of it. In Ephesians chapter 18, we have the big idea, huh? The main verb, do not be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, when you're, when you're drunk and the wine is controlling you, what does that lead to? How does that evidence itself? Paul says, in debauchery. When you are truly controlled by the Holy Spirit, how will that evidence itself? Oh, you talk in very pious tones and raise your hands and close your eyes when you sing. Boy, he's spirit-filled. Now, don't be not silly, huh? Mysticism is not being spirit-filled. Notice four very practical expressions of a life controlled by the Spirit of God, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Secondly, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Thirdly, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And fourthly, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is the very thing that produces submission. And this is a wife's responsibility then, as is the case with all Christians. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It will evidence itself in a life of submission. I think it's very important that you understand that a godly husband does not always net a godly wife. And an ungodly husband doesn't condemn a wife to spiritual maturity. In fact, one could easily argue, friends, the very opposite, given the fact that the scripture, in the scriptures, suffering is very often God's most effective means of producing real spiritual maturity. Listen to this from 1 Peter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Her character here is not because of her husband. Frankly, it's in spite of him. So keep in mind, when Paul addresses wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, masters, he uses, don't forget, what we call the case of direct address. When he says wives, he is not saying husbands, make sure that your wives do this. He's not speaking to husbands. He's not speaking to children. He is speaking to wives. This is her responsibility. Now, a husband can make it easier. A husband who loves like this can make it fulfilling but the responsibility is hers. Okay? Two more questions, I think. Yeah. What is your position on divorce? What is your position on divorce? Um, turn to Matthew 19. I don't know that we'll have time to look at it, but to turn to, sorry, yeah, turn to Matthew 19. Still. This is a question, friends, that all by itself could occupy a couple of sessions. Moreover, this, issue, this is an issue over which good Christian people who love the Word of God have disagreed about. John Piper sees this one way. John MacArthur sees it a different way. Jay Adams sees it a different way. Larry Crabb sees it yet a different way. What's the reason for this? They all love the Word of God. They're all submitted to the authority of the Word of God. What's the reason? There are several, but in my view, the most significant 
is that the Bible itself does not provide us with a comprehensively consistent answer to this question. If you examine all the passages that address divorce, my friends, if you just lay them out on sheets of paper in front of you, you will quickly discern that while they are not contradictory, they are also not uniform. And so the Bible reader is left with one of two options. A, he must decide to elevate one passage to the place of interpretive control and then find ways to submit all the other passages to that. Or B, he must conclude that the Bible does not intend to make an all-inclusive statement on divorce that is always applicable in every situation for all of life. This is what reflects my thinking on this matter. So what I'm going to give to you, four, five, six summary statements that capture where I am on this subject. And by the way, you can see Trinity Church's teaching position on the website regarding divorce and remarriage. It's all there. One, the Bible is clear that divorce is allowable, not demanded, not required, but allowable in at least two situations. In the case of unrepentant immorality, the word is pornea. It's not the simple word for adultery, mokia. Pornea speaks of all sexual, all manner of sexual perversions, Matthew chapter 5. And in the case of abandonment on the part of an unbeliever, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So that while Malachi chapter 2 says that God hates divorce, at times it is clear from the scriptures that God allows what he hates. I would encourage you to read Deuteronomy chapter 24 and Ezra chapter 10, where under the leadership of God's spirit, divorce is regulated in Deuteronomy, mandated in Ezra 10. Two. Even when divorce is sinful, it is not the unpardonable sin when it has been followed by repentance. People who have been divorced should never be regarded as less than fully Christian. And some of us here in this room, well, maybe only a couple of us, huh? Maybe Norm and me and a couple of others. Some of us here are old enough to remember 25, 30 years ago when there were people who would not be allowed into membership at a church because they were divorced not allowed to serve in ministry because they were divorced, not allowed to sing in the choir because they were divorced. I think that is profoundly wrong. The fact is, given what I said to you just a few weeks ago, divorced people should be loved by us and embraced by us because of the unique scars and sufferings that accompany divorce, in particular, the rending of that one flesh relationship that may have implications for the rest of their entire life. Third, divorced people are not, solely on the basis of divorce, permanently excluded from serving in a church office. That is, in the eldership or in the deaconship. There are some churches that have said you can come into membership and you can serve and maybe we'll even let you teach a class, but, 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 but. But, but, but you could never be an elder here. You could never be a pastor here. You could never be a deacon or a deaconess here. 
I think that is profoundly mistaken. I don't see anything in Titus chapter 1 or 1 Timothy chapter 3 where those qualifications are spelled out in some detail. I don't see anything there that mitigates against a person who has been divorced occupying one of those offices. The qualification is to be above reproach. Is it possible for a divorced person to be above reproach? Absolutely, positively. Is it possible for a person who has been divorced to now be a one-woman kind of man or a one-man kind of woman in the case of a a deaconess? Absolutely, positively. Four, separation can be a legitimate alternative in the event that a spouse or child are being seriously threatened by abuse or violence. God has built us with the instinct to protect ourselves. Someone raises their hand against you, you flinch. God made you that way. We even saw this illustrated in a different context, but nonetheless the same idea in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul says nobody ever hates his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. He cares for it. He feeds it. He instinctively takes care of himself. She instinctively takes care of herself. So if somebody is in a position where they are being threatened, where they are being beaten, where a child is being abused absolutely positively, in fact, in the case of a child, just so you know, in the case of a child being abused, somebody tells me that, I pick up the phone and call the police. I have no other choice. I'm legally bound to do that very thing. And a wife, if a wife is being threatened to the point of death, I have to pick up the phone and call the police. That is our obligation, and frankly, I think it's not just our obligation. I think it is profoundly Christian. So I I think in such cases, separation is a legitimate alternative. Nonetheless, at the same point, I always want to be working toward reconciliation. But I think that is a legitimate alternative, and frankly, friends, I think both Norm and I would counsel people, Jared, we would counsel people in that way if necessary. Five. I won't read Matthew 19. We don't have time. Divorce can never be cherished as a viable alternative for a follower of Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is it is altogether inappropriate for a Christian to say, well, divorce is an option if this thing doesn't turn out to be exactly what I thought it would be. Guess what? It never turns out the way you thought it was going to be. Never, 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 never. If you tell me that, I'm going to call you a liar. It never turns out the way you thought it was going to be. Okay? So while divorce may be an option in certain circumstances, it's never something we go into marriage expecting to do, nor is it the option that we run to when things don't shape out exactly as we thought. I would encourage you to read Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, where Jesus says, let no man separate what God has joined. And for those Greek geeks who happen to be here, that is a present imperative with a negative that means actually, literally, stop separating what God has joined. Now he then goes on to make provision for divorce. But as a general principle, stop an action that is already in process. Okay, I hope that's helpful for you. I I hate to talk about this. I know you do too, but it's the reality of living in a fallen world, friends. And so we want to be compassionate with people who have been through this. And we want to love them and care for them and not ever in any way treat them as second-class citizens. Lastly, 
What are your views on homeschooling? What are your views on homeschooling? Over the years, we have had a chance to observe some very, very effective homeschooling families. We have also had the unfortunate experience of seeing disasters befall parents and their children as a consequence of homeschooling. So I'm going to give you my views, hopefully informed by biblical wisdom and also by the fact that at one time or another, Lori and I employed each of the three traditional methods open to parents. We did private school, we did public school, and we did homeschool. So here are three things I want you to keep in mind. One, it is not an educational method prescribed by the Bible. It is not an educational method prescribed, demanded by the Bible. I really like the way this question has been asked in that it has been asked properly. What are your views on homeschooling? Because there is no explicit instruction in the Bible related to this task. You're not going to come up and show me a verse that says, here it is, it seals the deal. There isn't one. The fact is, and this is only an observation, this too is no prescription. Education in the various cultures of the Bible, Jewish, Egyptian, Greek, Roman, was most often done in schools. I urge you to read the article on education in The Manners and Customs of Bible Times by Ralph Gower. Now, religious education was often done in Jewish homes, a la Deuteronomy 6, but even then we see Hannah bringing Samuel to the house of the Lord to be taught by Eli, 1 Samuel 1. We see Samuel establishing the school of the prophets, kind of an ancient seminary, 1 Samuel 19. It's why the priests were often referred to as father, teaching children as their students. Moses was trained in Egyptian schools, Acts 7. Paul was trained by a professor named Gamaliel, Acts 22. Abraham was trained most likely in the schools of Ur, a curriculum that included mathematics, language, geography, botany, and various arts. Now please hear what I'm saying, friends. All of this is very nuanced and you need to listen with sharp ears. I'm not advocating this kind of educational system. I'm only saying at the very least we have to acknowledge that homeschooling is not mandatory in the Bible. That doesn't make homeschooling bad. It does mean that homeschooling isn't inherently Christian and therefore in no way compulsory. And so if the Bible doesn't make it mandatory then we must never foster the notion, even in unspoken terms, that homeschooling is the authentic barometer of spiritually-minded parents who really love their kids. If you homeschool your children, happily share your convictions when asked about the schooling choices that you've made for your family without in any way putting down families who make different choices. But do not become an evangelist for homeschooling and think that in so doing you are advancing the Christian cause. Two, homeschooling can be a legitimate educational alternative for some families. Now in my view... Homeschooling is not for every family. I'm an educator. You cannot educate your children beyond where you are. Of course, very often people will say in response, well, I just pop in the DVD or give my children a book to read and they learn by themselves. And what I'm saying after 30 years in ministry is this. I've seen too many children get to be 18 years old and they cannot compete in the secular marketplace. 
They have been hobbled by a system of education that did not adequately prepare them to thrive in and contribute to this culture as a Christian man or woman, a Christian scientist, a Christian accountant, a Christian musician, a Christian businesswoman, a Christian doctor. Moreover, I have had Christian college professors tell me that they've had many such students who did not have the intellectual and social discipline to function in a college. The kinds of skills children are more likely to learn in a classroom with a teacher who is much more objective, something a parent can never fully be, along with other students by which to properly measure oneself. Have you ever noticed arrogance comes very easily to the student who learns by himself? May I share one more observation? Some of the most guilt-ridden, stressed, filled, depressed, and brittle Christians I have ever known have been homeschooling moms who were so profoundly overwhelmed with the task of schooling their children that they are unable to function in any meaningful way with their husbands and in the congregation. In my view, this is a gigantic concern that has not been adequately addressed. That having been said, some homeschooling families can be a marvel to watch. They are giving their children a first-rate education. Very often, one or both parents are trained educators. They are highly disciplined people themselves who are intentionally preparing their children with the tools necessary to engage this culture in a meaningful and positive way. It is true that homeschooling families encounter unique challenges and that as a church we need to pray for them and love them and support them just as we do for private school families and public school families given the unique challenges they face. So homeschooling can be a legitimate educational alternative for some families. Third, it must never be used as a means of sheltering your children from this culture. It must never be used as a means of sheltering your children from this culture, from their earliest days. Lori and I said to Catherine and Jonathan, God has given you life. Well, well, the very first question we taught them, the first catechism question, we, who made you? Who made you? God made you. Who made you? God made you. God has given you life. God has given you life, not as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but for the sake of advancing the gospel. For the sake of advancing the gospel. And my dear friends, if our children mature into young adulthood without any meaningful relationship with unbelievers, the greater likelihood is that they will develop contempt for such people rather than compassion for such people. They need to love the man with AIDS who works at the Fred Meyer. They need to love him. They need to know how to talk with him. They need to know how to display kindness to him. They need to know how to have them in their home and have him eat at their table. But it is highly unlikely that they will ever get there if the entirety of their educational experience is designed to keep them away from such people. Bigotry, beloved, is not just a sin of commission. It can be a sin of omission. You don't ever have to say that you hate gay people. You convey it very eloquently by doing everything in your power